morning, everybody. Uh, I want you to turn in your Bibles to uh, 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, and we're going to start there in verse 16. I want you to take some notes. I want to tell you a little bit about uh, what I got to experience on Friday. I went to Sunset Valley Elementary School, and uh, I participated in something called uh, Donuts for Dads. And uh, and I, it was 7 a.m. We, we showed up about 6:40, and uh, we're we're ready to serve donuts. And and it's really an opportunity for father and father figures. And really, there was a whole bunch of other people, grandparents and uncles, uh, for kids who didn't have dads, would show up and have breakfast with their kids at Sunset Valley Elementary School. Now, if you don't realize that Sunset Valley Elementary School is a school that we're in partnership with and we're in the process of sort of adopting and, and making it our place where we're investing in those kids, in those families, and in the administration and the teachers. Now, the reason I think this kind of partnership is so important is because the church needs to be relevant in our community. We don't just need to gather in... Um, places like this and worship God, although that is important to us personally and as a community. But we need to be uh, connected and invested in the community at large. And that's so important for us. And so I, I went there and I, I, uh, I, watched, I watched them all you know, do their thing in the mornings and they, they gather all the kids and they, they, they go through all the pledge and all the stuff and all these parents were there. And, and uh, it, was, it was pretty... Um, it was pretty eye-opening. I want to give you some stats on um, this school, Sunset Valley Elementary School. If you look, um, just throw those stats up there. It's a, uh, oh, they're not going to be able to see that. <laughs> That's all right. Maybe next service, go a different background there. There you go. 546 students in this school. Limited English proficiency. Limited English proficiency, that's called LEP. That's uh, the amount of kids that really don't have a full grasp of English language. They're, Hispanic is 74%. They've got uh, economically disadvantaged, 71%. And then uh, special education, 12%. Um, their greatest needs, according to, the, um, according to the principal, was reading and writing assistance. They need people to help teachers with students in their classrooms while they're doing small groups or while they're doing other things. They need help in, in just being there to help show kids how to write and listen to them read. And the other thing they need is they need mentors. There's a whole bunch of kids in that school that don't have dads or don't have moms. They have single-parent households, and they need other people to invest in their lives just to spend time with them once a week. Now, when I... When I, you know, I've, I've been there a few times. I actually went there and I painted, we, I, a whole big team painted a big, um, you, it's a, it was kind of a mural, but I, do you call a mural something that you put on the ground? Is that still a mural? Okay. It was of the United States. And we did this whole thing of the United States on their gymnasium floor outside. And, uh, and it, w it was like this big concrete slab and basketball hoops and everything. And how many people went with me to do that? Is there anybody here who went to do that? Look, these people, we went there and we painted all this stuff. And it was awesome. And they're great people, these teachers. And the amount of time that they give and the amount of um, investment they're making in these, in these students. And, and I watched them do their thing on Sunday morning. I watched those parents come in and a bunch of them, uh, um, they, they, some of them looked really rough. Some of those kids, I saw those kids walking up to the, because there were Shipley's Donuts, right? Have you ever had a Shipley's Donut? 
Oh, if you have not had a Shipley's donut, it is like heaven. Later, it's like hell, but initially, initially, it's, it's like heaven. Getting it off right here is hell, but so, so I, um, I watched those kids and they come up to the table and they kind of had this, this thing where they, we, we had all kinds of kids come up. Some, many kids didn't have their dads there and they would come up and could I have a donut? And you could, you could see in them, it was kind of like, is, is there enough for me? Like they were used to there not being enough for them. You could see it in their eyes. You could see it in the way they were, in the way they were approaching the table, in the way that they were dealing with things. And then there was others who'd be like, um, come back for like seconds, thirds, and have you already had a donut? No. And there's white stuff all over their face. No, no, no. Um, I, I, I know we're all busy. I mean, I know we all got stuff to do. We all got our own kids we're dealing with. I mean, for crying out loud, I got five kids. <laughs> Um, but there's something about going beyond your own circle, something about becoming relevant in the community at large that's so necessary for us. And that's really what I want to talk to you about today. You know, as we've been going through this series called Poured Out, The Way We Worship, we're really talking about how we pour ourselves out to God, what, that worship is in and of itself, a pouring out, a pouring out of our lives. And the first week we talked about it, and it was Family Sunday, and we had all this cool stuff, and I did an illustration and how our lives are filled with greed and with sinfulness and failures and depression and all kinds of stuff, and we poured it all in, and, and you could see it there. And when we, f when we keep our lives full of all that stuff, it's hard for God to get in. When we refuse to empty ourselves of ourselves, it's hard for God to fill, ourselves, fill, fill us up. And so there's something about pouring yourself out and just saying, God, I surrender completely and totally to you. And we illustrated that. It was really fun. And then last week, we talked a little bit about what it means to stand here and to come and be part of this community and what the Bible says about expressive worship. If you didn't get to hear that, it's on the podcast. You can go listen to it. Expressive worship, what the Bible has to say about pouring yourself out, pouring your heart out to Him. And today I want to talk to you just briefly about pouring yourself out for others and what that means in worshiping God. And so look in your Bibles, 1 John chapter 3. Verse 16, let's pray before we read the scripture. Father, thank you for the word. Thank you that it's alive and it's active. Let it, let it have its effect in each of our lives. Give us strength, give us grace today to hear it and then to act on it. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 16 says, this is how we know what love is. Ooh, this is a good place to underline in your Bible. If your Bible's too good to underline, enshrine it in glass and get a new one. <laughs> take, take your pen and underline this. This is how we know what love is. This is the definition. Here it is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? 
It's a rhetorical question. The, the obvious answer is it can't. You don't realize that when you just read right past it. What the author is saying, what John is saying here is, how can you see your brother in need and then not have pity on him and claim that the love of God is in you? You can't. Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. What are we supposed to, what are we supposed to love with? What does it say it out loud? Actions and truth. This then is how we know. I love this verse. Verse 19. This then is how we know that we belong to the truth. Wait, how do we know we belong to the truth? Wait, look at me. How do we know we belong to the truth? Because we're loving people with actions and truth. This is how we know we belong to that community. Is we're loving people not just with words. We're not just, oh, brother, you know, I just love you so much. God bless you. It's nice to say there's something more. There's something more that God wants you to learn how to pour out. Because there's a secret here. There's a secret about worshiping God. When you worship God this way, something happens. Look, verse 19 says, this then is how we know we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. This is how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. Two things I want you to think about. Could it be that when we are the people of God that he wants us to be and we share with people in need, that we receive the kind of rest that we need? Could it be that when we're willing to obey the Lord, that he gives us something back, that we set our hearts at rest in his presence, that his presence comes upon us in a new and different way. You, if you go on and you, you see it, as, as verse 20 says, whenever our hearts condemn us, it, we set our hearts at rest in his presence, whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. What he's essentially saying is, look, the best one of the best things you can do against the, the condemnation of your own heart or feeling bad about yourself is being willing to engage in what God designed you for, and that is good works to serve others. Now, it's not how you get salvation. It's not how you receive the grace of God. But when you receive the grace of God, if you refuse to spill it out, if you refuse to let it out to others... If you try to use it all up on yourself, there's a problem. There's a problem. Do, do you know the, the famous love chapter in the Bible? It's 1 Corinthians 13. Just turn over there real quick. 1 Corinthians 13. Look what it says. 1 Corinthians 13 says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not, what? If I don't have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. That's called annoying. <laughs> clanging, uh, a banging gong, a resounding gong, or a clanging cymbal.
I don't know, I just felt like I wanted to do it. I just wanted to see what it would sound like. Verse 2, if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. So you could do all kinds of spiritual stuff. You could do all kinds of things that are really impressive. You can have all kinds of gifts. You can do all kinds of things that are really a big deal. Moving mountains, explaining mysteries. But if you don't have love, you're nothing. And if I give all I possess to the poor and shredded my body to the flames. Now, here, here's, here's what he's saying. You can go ahead and give to the poor. You can go ahead and serve your brother. But if you do it under any motivation except love, then it's useless. So this is a bit of a conundrum, isn't it? We're supposed to do this thing, but really, we only can do it under the motivation of love. Look, he says, if I, if I give my uh, everything I possess and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. And then it names it. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It's not proud. It's not rude. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. It doesn't delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes. It always perseveres. Love never fails. Love never fails. What we're talking about here is how to love God and how to love people. Turn over to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. And this is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time today. Here's what I, here's kind of the, the, the first big idea I want you, to, you get, to get. And that is our worship of God is validated only by our love for others. <laughs> our worship of God is validated only by our love for others. Now this, this, this seems um, a little scary to me as I was reading through it and I'm, I'm wrestling through it, that worship, your worship, my worship, our worship may actually be disqualified by a lack of love for people. We'll talk about that more in just a second. Look at verse uh, 25 in <clears throat> Luke chapter 10. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to, to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, what's the question? Get, get the question in your mind. The expert in the law, and he's saying what? He's, and he's testing Jesus. He thinks he already knows the answer. Right? Always a problem when you ask in a question, you think you already know the answer. That's also annoying, by the way. <laughs> so so you, you, um, the teacher, he asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And then Jesus puts it right back to him, and he says, what is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? How do you read it? And he answered, love the Lord. Your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. He quotes the Shema, which is Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5. It is, a, it is one of the cornerstone scriptures and ideas of the Jewish people. He, everyone would have known it. And he, he quotes it. And then he quotes uh, Leviticus 19, 18. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
He may have even heard Jesus in one of the exchanges in some other setting. Articulate these two things. Jesus says, you have answered correctly. Jesus replied, do this and you will live. Life doesn't begin until you understand that loving God is inextricably linked with loving people. That's a fun word to say, inextricably. The first commandment is inextricably linked to the second commandment. You can't separate them. Here it is. Verse 29, but he wanted to justify himself. <laughs> so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And who is my neighbor? Think about the question. And who is my, do I have to, who do I have to love? That's essentially the question. Who do, who do I have to love? Do, are, there, are there such a thing as non-neighbors? Like, Jesus, tell me who this is. How does this work? And Jesus begins to tell the story of the Good Samaritan, which we're going to read here in a moment. But I want you to see how Jesus is turning an abstract theological discussion into a discourse on real-life issues. Jesus always does this. We cannot stay cloistered inside of our church buildings and just deal with theological discussions. They have to be connected to real-life situations, real-life issues. Jesus asked the question of the expert, how do you read it? And the expert quotes these two passages. And you have to understand that the Pharisees, sometimes they get a bad rap. Sometimes it's, it, we look at them as if they're the, the arch enemies of Jesus. They're not just the arch enemies of Jesus. They were religious leaders. They were, they were people who knew the law better than almost anybody else. They were, the Pharisees were actually separated even from other religious leaders as a, as a really uh, aggressive, holy sect of Jewish um, culture. And so they, they, they were these people that, and, and many of them were not just trying to tear Jesus down. They actually were defending what they thought was the truth of the scripture. There was a wrestling that went on in some of them. The Pharisees and other Jewish leaders were often of the opinion that if people would follow the law perfectly, that that would usher in the Messiah who would save them. When God's people would obey perfectly, something would happen. They, they wanted to know exactly how to attend to the law, not because they were evil, but because they really wanted to do the right thing. Of course, it's a trap, isn't it? It's a trap. Trying to do the right thing. The law is the thing that makes us aware of sin and keeps us a slave to that knowledge. What Jesus was trying to say is we need a savior who will release us, who will save us from our sin and the violations of the law. And, but he wasn't coming so that the law was irrelevant. He, he want, the law is, is good and it's true and it helps identify how sinful we really are. We just need to acknowledge we need a savior to help us, to rescue us from the slavery 
of trying to do the right thing. The expert is trying to make a distinction to make sure he follows the command of Jesus. But the Bible does say he was testing him, but he inadvertently implies that some people are neighbors and others are not. Is he suggesting that ultimately one's responsibility is only to love God's people? Is he trying to put people into two camps, those who are holy and those who are not? Here's what 1 John 4.20 says in the Message Bible. Look at this. Don't turn there. I'll just put it up on the screen. If anyone boasts, I love God, and goes right on hating his brother or sister, thinking nothing of it, he is a liar. If he won't love the person he can see, how can he love the God he can't see? The command we have from Christ is blunt. Loving God includes loving people. You've got to love both. The question that he asks, the question he asks is, who is my neighbor? But Jesus' answer is, it's the wrong question. Jesus' answer is, it's the wrong question. Let's read it. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and when he fell into the hands of robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, you got to hear it through the lens of... Hear through the lens. Hear through the filter. See through the lens. You gotta, you gotta see it through the lens of the people that were listening to Jesus. They would have understand that this road to Jericho was incredibly dangerous. It was infamous for robberies and all kinds of scary characters and and that kind of thing. So you have to, you have to understand he was using a, a picture that they would have really understood. All right. And so he's, they're going, he's, he's talking about this guy who was going f- from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell into robbers. They stripped him of his clothes. They beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. Verse 31, a priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side, which means he was going down the road, and he, he had to get away from him because he didn't, he didn't want to deal with him. He didn't want his holiness damaged by getting close to a guy who was a mess. Now, you think that's kind of funny, but there was an issue. If a guy is, if dead people would, would violate holiness, it's very clear in the Old Testament passages that if you touched a dead person, that you would have to uh, live outside the camp for seven days. You had, to, you had to distance yourself. Why? Because God was teaching them how to deal with diseases and all that kind of stuff. That's, that was the reason. It wasn't about holiness, but the Pharisees began to interpret it as holiness. You see, it's so easy for us to start, start using um, the things that we do in this life as the thing that makes us acceptable to God. When in reality, it's really an open heart and a, and a surrendered life. Right? See, this is why you can't, you can't just do good things. You can't go to the school and pat yourself on the back and say, oh, I did it. That's really good. Now God likes me. See, wrong thing. Wrong idea. It's not going to work that way. So the priest happened to be going down the same road. When this is a, a holy man. He passed on the other side. So to a Levite, a Levite, one of the people, the descendants of Levi, 
the people who were in charge of the temple, all the temple duties, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. Same problem. And then you can think of the, the hearers. Jesus, Jesus is telling this story, and they're thinking in their mind, okay, so a priest and then a Levite, and I know who's coming next. It's going to be a Pharisee. A Pharisee. They're the holiest of the holy. Their name, their very name means separated. So the priest comes by, and then Levite, now the Pharisee's coming by, and he's going to be the hero of the story. But in a shocking cultural reversal, Jesus twists it on them, and he says, finally, a Samaritan comes by. You have to understand the Samaritan people, all right? Here we go. Lesson on history. Can you go with me? All right. Here we go. In 1 Kings chapter 11 and 12, we see Solomon dies. Do you remember who Solomon was? If you think about the first kings of Israel, there was King Saul, and then there was King David, and then his son Solomon. And Solomon inherited a kingdom from David that was a bit in disarray, but it was strong. And Solomon began this reign in Jerusalem and all, all over throughout Israel. Uh, so famous, so conquering. They conquered all their enemies. He became so wealthy. He, of course, he was, the Bible calls him the wisest man on the earth. God gave him wisdom and riches. And so uh, other kings and so, so impressive. I mean, the reign of King Solomon was awesome. But what had happened was Solomon built all this stuff and he taxed the people really hard. And so he dies and Rehoboam begins to take over his son, Rehoboam. That's a fun name to know and say. Come on, say it with me. Rehoboam. Rehoboam is different than his brother Jeroboam. Just saying. Rehoboam, uh, he assembles Israel, or sorry, Israel assembles before him, and they ask him to tax them less. It was like the tea party came to Rehoboam. Okay, I thought that was going to be funny, but it wasn't that funny. All right, <clears throat> so Rehoboam asks, he asks two groups of people, should I, what should I do? He asks his friends, and he, his young friends, and he asks the old men, old wise men, friends of his dad. He says, what should I do? His old friends say, your dad was a great man, but he, he taxed them hard. If you'll just ease up on them, you will have their hearts forever. That's what he says to them. But his young friend says, you need to establish your rule. You need to prove that you're just as good as your dad, and you need to make it harder for him. Don't make it easier. Make it harder. He followed the advice of his young friends, and 10 tribes, 10 of the tribes of Israel separate from from them. The only two tribes are Judah and Benjamin, and they stay because they're located right near Jerusalem, and they would have benefit, benefited from all the taxation. So they stay. The ten tribes disappear, or they don't disappear. They just separate. They kind of create their own kingdom. And Assyria has become a major power in the earth by 722 AD, uh, I'm sorry, BC, and overthrows the northern kingdom he, they, they attack them and they overthrow them. And their political approach is when they attack a, a, an, an entity, a country, their approach is assimilation, which provides tax benefits for intermarriage and 
they separate, what they do is they take the people and they separate them into five different people groups to settle into a territory under their rule. And so they, they settle them in with five different other people groups and they encourage them to intermarry. And when they intermarry, of course, the, the line, the lineage is gone. Samaritans are the people who were conquered and intermarried. Samaritans, actually, they didn't have all of the Torah, so they kind of made up, they had kind of had a, a, a partial Torah, and they made up their own, there was a, an element of temple worship that was different than the pure Jewish worship, which is why, this, I can see it, you're glazing over. You're like, what? What are you talking about? When Jesus meets with the woman at the well in John chapter 4, he, she says to him, you people worship this way, and we worship another way. You worship on this mountain, we worship on another mountain. What's this all about? And Jesus says, you're missing the point. Jesus is, God is searching, the Father is searching for worshipers who will worship him in spirit and truth. But she's a Samaritan, so she's thinking this way. And so in a society of tribalism, the best way to obliterate a people group is make them intermarry and dominate them. And Samaritans are those descendants. And they were seen as impure half-breeds. They were hated by the Jewish people. These are the people who didn't hold firm. They were taken and they just gave in. That's how they saw them. And then they came, they came back and this is kind of like the most liberal and partisan Northeastern Democrat reaching out to care for a conservative right-wing Texan. It's like a Catholic and a Protestant, you know, like they're, they're fighting each other. It's, 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 it's like a Texas Longhorn and an A&M Aggie. caring for each other. Something is wrong with this picture. So what happens here? The Samaritan came, verse 33, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. And he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he put a man, put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. And the next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Jesus is telling the story. Now put yourself in the story. Remember, he, all the hearers, they're listening to the story. A priest, a Levite, and then a Samaritan comes up and cares for this guy. Jesus, what are you talking about? What reality do you live in? Jesus' point was he lives in the reality of the kingdom of God. It's a different reality. Verse 56, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? This is Jesus talking to the expert in the law who's trying to test him. Verse 37, the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. I, I think we can learn so much from this story, so I want to I highlight a few things, all right? Take your pen, and let's write a few things down. The Good Samaritan made it personal to him. It was personal, all right? Look how he made it personal. He didn't just... He, he, this is what we try to do. Sometimes in our North American thinking, we want to just... Uh, join some organization or we want to throw money at something. What, what I want to encourage you to do is take this personally. 
Actually, that's why I gave you a handout in your worship guide. I'll get to that in a minute. Look at this. He used his own resources. He was incredibly generous. He used his own resources to care for the man. Here's what I want you to understand. Love is tangible, practical, and measurable. Why don't you write those three words down? Love is tangible, practical, and measurable. You can measure love. Just ask your wife. <laughs> there's, a, there's, a, there's an idea here that we sort of want to just um, love people with our words. And what John said earlier is you have to love with a way that is practical, that is measurable. People experience love in this way. The second thing he did is he included another person in the work. He included a partnership. He went to the guy at the inn, and, he, and he, he said, I want you to care for this guy because I've got to go on. If I could encourage you to include another person, what I, what, my, what I want for all of our small groups, what I want for all of our connect groups is for us to decide together to do something couple times a semester that's outside of our comfort zone. Go help somebody in need. Go do something that's beyond our own circle. When we do, something happens. When we work together, we have an experience. When we, when we do, when we do things, things like this, God's presence rests on us, just like John said. The third thing he did is he made arrangements to stay involved. He made a commitment he made an arrangement. He said, he said, okay, so I'm gonna give you this, I'm gonna give you this money, and then I'm gonna come back and I'm gonna check on it. It wasn't a one-hit wonder. It wasn't just doing one nice thing. That's why I'm so convinced that being involved in a school, and listen, we can be involved in more schools than one. You can be involved in your own school. The issue is let's be involved in a long-term situation. Let's make it part of our community and part of our desire to be poured out. Be poured out where people can see the love of God. Look, the, the, the deal is people help people. Systems, projects, programs, they're all good, but ultimately we must remember that people help people. And, we're, and listen, uh, one of my things is I'm, I'm in here, I'm, I'm into this school at Sunset Valley. I'm here in southwest Austin for the long haul. I'm here for the long term. I used to live in Colorado. It's a beautiful place, but it's cold. <laughs> I love this city. I love that Jesus let me come here. I love that Jesus has added you and me together to make a difference in this city. I love what God has put in front of us. I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to be here for a very, very long time. And here's the thing. Here's what I believe. Long-term relationships, that's where the most impact is. One of the reasons I don't believe in church hopping and church shopping is because long-term relationships are where you, learn, you grow the best. We got lots of people who go two, three years at a place and then they go on to the next place. Listen, most of you just showed up here. We're only two years old. Can I just encourage you that the best, most effective work we can do together is if we'll stay together, is if we'll connect in honesty, 
and vulnerability, and then we'll pour ourselves out in worship before the Lord and pour ourselves out in worship into this city. That 10 years from now, we can look back and, and, and look at all that God's done and we'll be able to share it together. That's what I'm trying to do. That's what I want. That's, that's what I want to see. If you, go, if you go on to somewhere else and do something else, I mean, God bless you. It happens. It's just part of the deal. I mean, you ended up here some way. <laughs> God has to be in charge of all that. That's, but I, what I want you to hear from me is I believe that long-term relationships, long-term investment, the long picture, the, the marathon, not the sprint, is the thing that has the most impact in a city. And finally, he committed future resources. He had faith. He, he committed future research. He said, okay, here's, here's two coins. Here's two silver coins. And when I come back, if, if it costs more, go ahead and spend it because I'll reimburse you. He had faith that God was going to provide his needs for another person. <laughs> Helping other people ignites all the right things inside of us. <laughs> it forces us to wrestle with generosity. It forces us to wrestle with partnership and working with other people. The commitment of long-term relationships and the faith that is required for what's in the future. Here's, an, here's the second list of things I just want you to get. The Good Samaritan made a countercultural decision here. He made a countercultural decision. I want you to see this. He did not choose the time or the place. He was walking along the road. Do you know, you know what? The difficulty is it was inconvenient. There are so many opportunities masquerading as inconveniences around your life. <laughs> there are so many opportunities masquerading as inconveniences if we'll just open our eyes and see it. His journey had been planned out. He was on his way to Jericho. He intended to be somewhere else, not in an inn taking care of a guy. He did not necessarily agree with the man's political or theological views. <laughs> that wasn't one of the criteria for helping the guy. We got to be willing to associate and serve those who are not like us. This is the point of Jesus' story. People that are not like us are the very ones that we need to serve and help. We don't discriminate. People of all walks of life need to experience the love of God. We don't discriminate. People of all walks of life need to experience the love of God. Finally, he did not accomplish the plans that he had for that day. He, he was less productive. Here's the question we have to ask. Are we willing to change our view of what being productive looks like as a Christian? The question for our lives is, what are we producing? With all of our work and our family and all of our activities and all the stuff that we're doing, what are we doing? Is it, is it honoring God? Is it worshiping God? Is it pouring out to him? Here's what I believe. Well, I think we got to break our addictions to convenience. Our addictions to agreement, only working with people like us, and our addictions to productivity. <laughs> Make no mistake, we're addicted to productivity. I'm addicted. I love productivity. <laughs> There's nothing better than checking it off the list. 
The question is, what's the list made up of? Is it the wrong list? Are we climbing the ladder only to realize when you get to the top, it's on the wrong wall? What are we doing in the kingdom of God? Finally, he believed the man's inherent value as a person. He had compassion on him like Jesus. He believed in the man's inherent value. Jesus was moved with compassion when he saw the crowds. The Samaritan man was filled with compassion when he saw him and he, and he valued him as a person. Now look, <clears throat> I'm going to put a, a last passage up on the screen. And I just want you to read it with me, all right? This is the Message Bible, and this is 1 John 4. So we're going back to where we started, just a little bit later in the, in the letter of John. And he says, my beloved friends, let us continue to love each other since love comes from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and experiences a relationship with God. Hey, do you catch this out. Catch this out? What, did I, what am I saying? Catch this. Check this out. Look at this. What's he saying here? Second sentence. Everyone who loves is born of God and experiences a relationship with God. Everyone who loves who? Everyone who loves people. Look, he says, my beloved friends, let's continue to love each other since love comes from God. The ability to love somebody else doesn't come from anybody else. It comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and experiences a relationship with God. So there's something about experiencing a relationship with God by loving other people. The person who refuses to love doesn't know the first thing about God. Because God is love. So you can't know him if you don't love. This is how God showed his love for us. God sent his only son into the world so we might live through him. This is the kind of love we're talking about. Not that we once upon a time loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to clear away our sins and the damage they've done to our relationship with God. And then one of my favorite passages in all the Bible, right here. My dear, dear friends, if God loved us like this, we certainly ought to love each other. For no one has ever seen God ever, but if we love one another, God dwells deeply within us. And his love becomes complete in us. Perfect love. He's essentially saying, this is how you see who God is. This is how people at Sunset Valley see who God is. By me wearing crazy plastic gloves and handing donuts. And doing it long enough that I start connecting with them. Creating opportunities that look a lot like inconveniences. Look at this. We learn how to love God by loving people. This is what this passage says. We learn how to love God by loving people. We learn about God's love through others loving us. When somebody else loves us, when somebody else demonstrates love to us, we, we start seeing who God is. And then finally, loving others tangibly allows them to see God. So the question Jesus is speaking to us when he's, when he's telling this story and he's talking about the Samaritan and, he, and, he's, and he's challenging this Pharisee who's testing him, he gets down to the end and he finally, he changes the question. He, he, his answer to the question is, it's the wrong question. And he says, the question is not, who is your neighbor? But 
what kind of neighbor are you? That's what Jesus is doing. It's not about who is your neighbor. It's not trying to pick and choose who's it. It's what kind of neighbor are you? This is what I want you to do. Bow your heads, close your eyes, and let's pray. Before we pray, I, I, want you to, I want you to take out your worship guide, and I want you to look at that, that piece of paper in there. It's a little bit of a, of a stretch for you, I know. But I want you to look at all these places. We've made contact with every one of these places. We're trying to connect with these. You, you've seen on our announcements, you've seen on our announcements Sunset Valley Elementary for the last six weeks. This school needs some of you. I want to challenge you to go outside your realm. I want, to, I want you to look at these different opportunities. We've made contact with them and made it so that you can easily connect with them with your family or with your connect group or, or with, with a, a group of friends. bunch of ministries that need help. Just look around at your neighbors. They need help. I wonder if you'd be willing to do something out of your comfort zone and be willing to go beyond and help somebody in need as a way of pouring out your life in worship to God. When we pour out our lives in worship, when we love others, God receives our worship. Our worship is validated. Our connection with God is enhanced. We begin to understand. So as you're, as you're listening to this message and as you're thinking about your life, I wonder if you just ask the Lord to lead you and guide you, maybe this week. Maybe to one of these places, maybe to a neighbor, maybe to something else that you've seen and noticed that's been on your heart. Would you be willing to be the kind of person who worships God by loving others? Father, would you help us in everything we're doing? All of our activities and our circumstances. Lord, some of us are struggling with burdens that we carry and life is difficult. It is very hard even on us. But Lord, would you help us to see that your grace comes and your mercy comes, your presence comes, rest comes when we're willing to love someone else with the love you gave us when we're willing to be motivated by the love you've placed in our heart to serve another, to help another, that something powerful happens with your spirit and your presence. We need that. We need to know what that looks like. We need to know how that works. Challenge us, lead us, guide us, show us, teach us, train us, train me, help me to worship you by loving others. I thank you for this. In Jesus' name.